0: Okay let's get started. So today I'm going to talk about uh, this uh, topic uh, of uh, judicial white privilege as an instrument of uh, colonialism. So uh, uh, first uh, let me introduce uh, three recent uh, events. The first event is that uh, as you some of you may know that uh, I have been under the FBI investigation under its uh, China Initiative. Uh, and uh, the FBI agent uh, conducted a, a, a search of my house, uh, uh, I think the day before Thanksgiving in 2019. Uh, As so of this past uh, Wednesday, the uh, FBI have uh, uh, notified me that they are ready to uh, 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 give back my properties. That's pretty much, uh, there's about uh, 126 pieces of uh electronic evidence of my, quote, crimes, end quote. So so that come to a close. Uh, As a matter of fact, the uh, FBI uh, uh, told uh, my attorney that uh, Peter must be happy about the FBI's decision not to move forward to press charges against me. But uh, my lawyer told the FBI, that he's not that sure that uh, uh, Peter will be happy about the decision, uh, which I'm going to explain later. So that is definitely some sort of a relief on my part. The uh, second uh, development uh, recently is that uh, this uh, uh, former U.S. Marine uh, by the name of Scott Ritter, uh, R-I-T-T-E-R, Scott Ritter, he had a made a comment, which I find out to be fascinating. He commented about this organization called the International Criminal Court, ICC. And uh, if you just Google Scott Ritter, uh, R-I-T-T-E-R, ICC, all three words together, you will find out uh, what, she, what he's saying on YouTube uh, in this uh, show hosted by this guy. His name is Richard Medhurst. So in that, uh, by the way, go, uh, before I go forward, Scott Ritter is a former United Nations uh, weapon inspector, and uh, he's a former Marine. Uh, he's by no way or no means that to be considered a, a leftist, uh, a, a member of the woke mob and all that. But in that video clip, you'll find out uh, Scott Ritter uh, basically called the International Criminal Court as a quasi-colonial court. Let me repeat. He called it. It's a tool of a quasi-colonialism. That's his words, not mine. And uh, the reason he said that is because uh, he, uh, Scott is saying the International Criminal Court is actually located in Europe, in a in a white nation, but uh, predominantly its cases involving. War crimes commi- uh, uh, committed by Africans in African countries. So, in his opinion, if the uh, if the war crimes are committed by Africans and the, in the African countries, uh, those cases should be adjudicated adjudicated by the the African Union, uh, which you know it's a similar organization like a European Union, uh, and uh, the fact that the uh, the international criminal court conduct its business in the European territory uh, over events that happened in the African countries uh, done by Africans. Uh, he considered that uh, you know a complete tool of uh, a quasi colonialism. So that is uh, quite refreshing, and uh, and uh, again, Scott Ritter is not any. Critical race theorist of any kind, and uh, but he has uh, you know pointed out this uh, hypocrisy basically. And uh, the third event uh, happened recently is this uh, U.S. Supreme Court decision, which is handed down this week, basically deny Puerto Ricans uh, SSI uh, benefit. This SSI benefit, I believe, it's a disability benefit by the federal government to the uh, older citizens or disabled citizens. And uh, this decision is interesting, not because, uh, before I move forward, the decision is made by nine justices in the U.S. Supreme Court uh, with uh, eight justices, uh, uh, basically over one dissenting justice, Justice Sotomayor. Uh, Justice Sotomayor, I'm told, uh, is a, from Puerto Rico originally. So she's the sole dissenter of this decision. The reason that the U.S. Supreme Court denied Puerto Ricans uh, SSI benefit is uh, because uh, the majority of the court believes that because Puerto Ricans does not pay all the federal taxes Therefore, it is reasonable for Congress not to provide them with SSI uh, benefit. And uh, this particular decision is interesting in the sense that, now, in my opinion, the fault is really not at the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, The fault is really at the the legislative branch of the government. And uh, remember, in the last episode, I have defined... Three tiers of white privileges. The first one is in the legislative branch, meaning the lawmakers, you know, uh, as uh, white, uh, you know, white majority being being the lawmakers, will make laws that uh, that will uh, at the, uh, that will deprive the rights and privileges of the racial minorities. And uh, there are uh, precedents of this, basically. Between the uh, American Revolutionary War and the Civil War, many states have uh, passed laws. It's called uh, without representation, no taxation, meaning that these uh, states in the United States have a give a free black uh, free blacks, basically the free slaves uh no taxation basically if you're black you don't have to pay taxes now this sounds very attractive right and uh, meaning that oh if you're a racial minority you don't have to pay taxes, but the problem is this: the motive behind it uh is really because the white majorities don't want Racial minority to be part of the government in voting, in receiving educational benefits such as schools and all that. So this concept called without representation, no taxation for black people actually is a, a good example of a white privilege in the legislative branch of the government. So in this Puerto Rico case, the, the fault is not at the U.S. Supreme Court. The fault is that, uh, the Puerto Rico is never considered to be a state of the United States. In fact, they are still considered to be a colony, as a matter of fact. So I'm going to uh, go over that a little bit later about the, the stat- political status of Puerto Rico. Uh, so, so basically, just three re- events happened recently. Again, just quickly recap. One is the FBI have uh, stopped investigating me. Uh, this is something that happened uh, two years ago, and uh, they have a uh, they cannot come up with anything against me. And uh, the second is about uh, Scott Ritter calling the International Criminal Court a tool of quasi colonialism. Uh, the third is this U.S. Supreme Court in re- decision in regard to the Puerto Ricans SSI benefit. So the talking points I want to go over today is this. The first one is uh, I call the transplantation of English law into other British colonies. Uh, in the last, on the, in the last episode, I talked a great deal about, uh, about, uh, this English law being, uh, being developed in a single race society and being imported into the into America, which is a multiracial society, was is never intended to work for racial minorities. However, there were other British colonies who di- uh, who 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 did use the English law uh, for the governance of the territory. You know, uh, I'm going to name a few. Uh, Hong Kong is one of them. Singapore will be another. Uh, India, uh, is also a British, uh, a colony. I think it's called the British Raj. And, uh, all three territories used to be British colonies. And I'm very sure English law is being implemented, uh, over there. And, uh, the difference between, uh, uh, uh between America and uh, this three other British colonies is this. Hong Kong, Singapore, and India are still considered to be not as multiracial as America, uh, because, uh, Hong Kong is mostly occupied by Chinese. And Singapore, uh, I don't, I know, I don't know about them, but now it's about 70% Chinese. Uh, and then with, uh, uh, Malay and, uh, Indian as the racial minority. And, uh, India also is, uh, you know, a big country, but, uh, but, you know, relatively speaking, it's not as multiracial as, uh, as America. So the, it seems to me the English law has, uh, worked okay, you know, uh, in, in those colonies. I want to use, uh, you know, Hong Kong as an example. Oh, actually, before I forget, the, uh, America is a capitalist society. But uh, but but European countries are a capitalist society also, and the, the, but the European countries also mostly single race society. At least they, they are not as diverse as America is, right? So so it seems to me the uh, the uh, the uh, the America's political and economic system has always been not just a capitalist system, but a racialized. Capitalist system that is very different from any European countries, being Britain, being France, being Germany, and uh, and uh, because in in Europe the capitalist uh, the capitalism is uh, is you know at least operated on a pretty homogeneous uh, environment, uh, and uh, so now let's go back to Hong Kong, the English law in Hong Kong. See, uh, I, it's my personal opinion is that the English law in Hong Kong actually worked pretty well uh, until more recently uh, since the takeover of Hong Kong by by uh, the mainland China. Uh, one example is uh, the case of Ho Chi Minh. Uh, Ho Chi Minh, as uh, you may know, uh, is the famous leader of, uh, of Vietnam. But in the 1930s, Ho Chi Minh was arrested in Hong Kong. He was arrested in Hong Kong uh, for a different reason because uh, he was already, at that time, he was already uh, 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 tried in absentia and is sentenced to death by French authority in Vietnam. So let me repeat, Ho Chi Minh at that time was already trialed by absentia and sentenced to death by French authority for whatever his activity were in, in, in Vietnam. So when Ho Chi Minh was arrested in Hong Kong, uh, the, 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 the English court has a very tough decision to make. Basically, whether they are going to dep- uh, extradite Ho Chi Minh, uh, to the French authority where he's no face, you know, certain death and, uh, or he should be allowed to go to a third country. Uh, that case shows that the English law actually, uh, is a independent judiciary, uh, that, uh, that uh, stand away from the politics, especially the international politics. Long story short, the, uh, the, 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 the case of deporting Ho Chi Minh back to Vietnam was, uh, first heard by the courts in Hong Kong, and then it was, uh, appealed to the uh, high court in London, England, and uh, eventually the decision was made uh, in London that British uh, courts should not get involved with the international politics. Uh, 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 As such, uh, Ho Chi Minh was allowed to uh, leave Hong Kong uh, to China as a, a third country uh, uh that uh, he will not face any uh uh uh, uh 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 risk of being killed or being said uh, being executed so comparing how the english law has worked in the Ho Chi Minh case to to today's case of this guy julian assange uh you can tell actually the the the, uh, the english courts these days is more involved in the international politics politics than say 90 years ago. Uh 90 years ago the english law actually in 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 other british colonies actually worked pretty independently uh, uh and uh, which actually is a good thing. So now coming back to america uh the uh, the uh, my my observation is that uh, America is a, a not just a capitalist society, it's a racialized capitalist society. And the but American, the American courts are one of the colonial instruments, uh kowtowing to the mandate of advancing property interests of the white majority. Basically the you know, if you look at all the records, these judicial white privileges, you know, sitting on the bench, always instead of following the controlling law of the time, especially the controlling law of the common law of England, they always follow the political expediency of the colonial policies. Uh, the American courts supported the taking of a native land. And the American court has supported the taking of African labor in, you know, involuntary servitude. And, uh, and the, American court's, the American court's decision pretty much make up a body of case laws as the legal foundation uh, of this uh, racialized capitalist system. So, and I think we are at the point that this is not going to work any longer. And the next talking point I want to talk about is uh, whether the United States is the only colonial superpower in today's world. Uh, This has been on my mind quite a bit uh, because uh, I want uh, uh, you know I I have this question after quickly going over the history of the Philippines and the history of. uh, Hawaii, and uh, the history of Puerto Rico, and the history of the tribal nations of the Native Americans. So the uh, Philippines, we know the Philippines used to be a colony of the United States. The United States take over uh, the Philippines from Spain. And, uh, but the rest, uh, and the, the reason, uh, the, the question will be asked, well, the United States also take over Hawaii and they made Hawaii a state. How come the Philippines were never, was never made a, a state of the United States? And, uh, now it's my opinion is that under the Constitution, had the Philippines made a state, uh, a state, then we're going to have a two Filipinos as the senators in the Senate. And because of the large population in the Philippines, again, under the constitution of the United States, we're going to have a lot of Filipinos as a congressman or woman. Uh, and which this will be have a, this will be a serious threat to the white privilege in the legislative branch of the government. So I think it's because of that, uh, you know, the Philippines, you know, would never been considered to become a state, unlike Hawaii. And uh, that also brought to the questions of the political status of Puerto Rico. And, uh, and uh, so in that regard, you know, I would uh, point out to this a uh, famous uh, Puerto Rican, uh, his name is Jose Trias Monge, I believe, uh, I, I could pronounce it wrong. His last name spells M-O-N-G-E. Uh, Jose Trias, P-R-I-A-S. And the last name is M-O-N-G-E. This guy, he was a lawyer and a judge in Puerto Rico. He served as the chief justice of the Supreme Court of Puerto Rico from 1974 to 1985. Uh, he had a, a master's degree from Harvard University, a law degree from Harvard Law School, and he had a, a doctorate, he completed a doctorate studies in law at Yale Law School. So he's a very accomplished jurist. Uh, in He published a book, uh, basically, I'm trying to find out the name of this book. The, basically, he, dedica- he, basically, he do- devoted this book uh, to answer one simple question. Is uh, Puerto Rico still a colony of the United States? I believe he published this book. Uh, basically, okay, the name of the book is called The Trials of the Oldest Colony in the World uh he published this book by Yale University Press nineteen ninety seven. The uh the question he wants to uh, address is that whether Puerto Rico remained to be a colony of the United States. Uh and uh, he concludes yes, uh, but this is back in nineteen ninety seven. And uh so accordingly uh, you know, if, if that is true, then we can safely say America, the United States, is still the the world's only colonial superpower, uh, which is quite contradictory to to our Declaration of Independence, meaning that all men are created equal, and that all men have these uh, a unalienable rights, uh, endowed by our Creator, and uh, that should not be taken away by any forms of government, right? So apparently, you know, the Puerto Ricans are not considered to be an equal citizen of the United States, just based on the most recent U.S. Supreme Court ruling denying them the uh, SSI benefit. And lastly, you know, this is thing. Uh, this question also bugs me a lot. The uh, tribal nations of the Native Americans exactly what's their political status. Uh, there's a reason I want to, uh, there's a reason I want to ascertain exactly what's the political status of these uh, tribal nations. Uh, an Old U.S. Supreme Court decision called tribal nations as a domestic dependent nations, end quote. Domestic dependent nations. So again, I want to make comparison to these tribal nations to Puerto Rico. Are they, are these tribal nations and the Puerto Rico considered to be colonies of the United States? Or are they independent nations? Because there's a difference. If Puerto Rico or these tribal nations are independent nations, state, then they are probably entitled to a seat in, in the United Nations. Right because they, they are not considered to be part of the United States, they are considered to be occupied territories of the united states so, so 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 to to consider all this uh I can only conclude that uh the United States probably even today is a colonial superpower uh this is very unique uh comparing to any. Uh, powerful countries uh, uh, in, in this world. And, uh, and uh, the reason I want to assert this question is this, if the United States remains a colonial power, then I can easily say that the courts in the United States are still serving the colonial interest of the United States. It's not a court for all the people it's a, it's a more of a court of the uh, uh you know white privileges by the white privilege and for the white privilege so that is uh the, the second topic talking points i want to cover and the the uh the third talking point i want to cover today is this how do we how do we come up with a solution To, for peace, uh, for justice and peace out of a capitalist justice system in a multiracial society. So following what I have concluded previously is that I think America is a racialized capitalist system. So now we can take a closer look at, you know, what exactly is the justice system in America? Uh first of all, is the American justice system system a capitalist system? Is it a colonial system? Or is it both? So so let's set aside race as a factor. You know, are lawyers in this country capitalists? Are bar associations just like other trade associations? To, uh, uh, for the benefit of promoting its own profession and a profit whose goal of a practicing law is to make profits instead of advancing justice, right? You know, set, set aside race. You know, you, you can be a white person and, uh, and you can be talking to a a, a black lawyer, a Asian lawyer, a Hispanic lawyer, uh you, you can certainly ask the question: is that is the lawyer's job is to make a profit for his business? Because he or she is certainly a businessman or businesswoman, or is his goal or her goal is to advance injustice? Now that's said that's by setting aside race as a factor. Right? So so if you bring in race as a factor, you know, should a lawyer, a true believer, be a true believer uh, 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 in racial justice and peace in this, in, in our society? You know, especially if a you are a racial minority uh, and that you are in a criminal proceeding or, or for the matter, uh, in a civil proceeding, Uh, can you trust your lawyer to use race as a strategy in arguing your case? And uh, more specifically, you know, uh, I I want to go back to this uh, uh, Black rage shooting incident. You know, will a lawyer be comfortable to use race as uh, as a defense strategy? And I'm going to use my case as an example. Will a lawyer be comfortable to use white privilege as a defense strategy? Not only whether they will be willing to use black rage as a defense strategy, or whether you know, but also will they be willing to use white privilege as a defense strategy? So that brought us to Talk about to touch upon this uh, last talking point. I want to talk about is a race as a defense strategy in a criminal proceeding. As I mentioned, uh, one of the uh, downsides that uh, the FBI is uh, uh, not going to proceed further with uh, investigating me is that I will not have the opportunity to use this uh, white privilege. As my defense strategy to to try it out I, 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 in a jury trial so so race as a defense strategy now I'm going to bring up two two possible uh uh defense strategies. One is called the black rage insanity defense uh, now this is not my invention uh, If you google black rage insanity defense, it's out there okay It's actually uh considered a legal term it's not invented by me it's invented by 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 the lawyers uh, and, uh, and another uh a uh, defense strategy a race based defense strategy is called the white privilege defense and which you know i i probably want to talk about uh, uh more in the uh, in the future episodes uh so let's just focus on this uh, black rage insanity defense uh I'm gonna use the insanity defense. Oh, before I move forward is this, any killing is unjustified. No rage, whether it's racially based rage or road rage or any rage that, uh, that induces kill, uh, killing, murdering of someone, a human being or a bunch of human beings is entirely un- unjustified. I just want to make that declaration first. And uh then I'm going to go into the insanity defense itself, okay? Set aside race. Insanity defense is a valid defense. Uh I want to bring this case up. It's called the Easter Sunday Massacre. This is a pretty old case that happened, I believe, in the 1970s. So 1975, March 30th. 1975 it's called the Easter Sunday massacre the shooter's name is James Urban Rupert R U P P E R T uh this guy killed uh, 11 person he did not kill himself he killed 11 person i think all of them are family members if you look at, at his case uh again Race is not a factor in this case, but insanity defense is used, uh, in, in defending this guy, James Rupert. I think, uh, the, eventually, the, uh, the decision by the court is that insanity defense was allowed in some of the, in the, in the killing of some of the victims. But uh, was not allowed in two of the victims. I don't remember exactly. Let me see here. Uh, so basically, uh, I think uh, he he his sentence. Again, this guy is still alive today. He's in the nineties. So he received. Uh, life sentence uh and uh but uh, his convictions were uh, somewhat overturned based on the insan- uh by reason of insanity uh on on nine counts of murder uh with the exception of uh, two counts of murder basically for the killing of his own mother and the brother he was found guilty he was found guilty but uh, for for the killing of uh, nine other people he was found not guilty by reason of insanity so that is so so insanity defense is a, a valid legal defense of mass killings okay so now let's look at the black rage insanity defense oh by the way the reason i got involved uh got interest in this black rage insanity defense is that I was uh since the FBI searched my house, I was planning to use the white privilege as the my defense if the if the, if the FBI this uh decides to press charges against me. And uh, I came across this uh, Black Rage insanity defense from this case called the Long Island Railroad uh murder. Basically, it's a mass, killing, a mass killing, mass shooting in Long Island Railroad. Uh, this is the first The uh, this Black Rage Insanity Defense was first seriously discussed. Uh, this The shooter's name is, if you give me a minute, the shooter's name is Colin Ferguson. Uh, he killed six people. He did not commit suicide himself. And uh, the court appointed the two attorneys for him. And, uh, the two attorneys, after their legal work, uh, proposed to use, uh, black rage, insanity defense, to, 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 to be, you know, put forward in his trial. But uh he has he uh on his uh, uh again this Colin Ferguson, uh by his own decision, he decided uh representing himself. And uh and he wants to questioning his uh, victims on the witness stand. So long story short that he was convicted, this uh Colin Ferguson. And uh but this is the first time uh this is the first instance that I'm aware of that race and the race-based insanity defense was used for the black race shootings, right? So, and, uh, this particular, uh, again, I want to go back to that. Black race shootings cannot be ju- justified. Uh, any shootings, any taking of another person's life cannot be justified, period. Okay. Uh, I'm just discussing this, uh, uh, you know, just for thought-provoking, uh, provoke um, uh, discussions, so, uh, and uh, in most cases, the, the the mass shooters also knew that uh, taking other lives uh, 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 can never be justified. But the, the, unfortunately, you know, as I have explained in the previous episode, uh, in uh, racialized capitalist society, you have at least three layers. Of uh, white privileges that uh, literally have an oppressive effect on racial minorities, right? So, so, so we have to understand where these rages come came from, right? So, uh, so I'm going to briefly talk about why these shooters themselves know taking of another person's life is can never be justified. The uh, the uh, the next black rage shooting uh, is uh, this uh, Hartford distributors shooting, basically by the name of Omar Tom, uh, Thornton. Perpetrator Omar Thornton. He killed nine people, including himself, and uh, he injured two other people. In this case, you know the you know it's a he has a employment discrimination grievances against his employer uh Hartford uh, Hartford uh beverage distributor so you know he killed a bunch of people and he I believe he knew this is wrong and uh, he killed himself the uh, the uh the his employer has come out saying uh the employer never discriminated against this uh black shooter but uh, I believe the girlfriend of this shooter who uh, who is white uh i believe he she showed a picture of uh, of a n-word in in uh, on the wall of a uh, in the facility of this distributor the uh again the, this person knows that uh, you know paying another person's life can never be justified he rather kill himself than go through the legal proceedings unlike the uh, long island railroad shooting and the next one is the uh uh, LAPD, uh, officer, Christopher bonner D-O-R-N-E-R shooting. Uh, they, in this case, uh, once again, he killed five people. Uh, he, I believe he killed uh, himself. And, uh, oh, actually, he, 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 he was killed in the shootout. Uh, apparently, you know, the, I believe these shooters, they all know that taking others' life is not something you can justify. He, they, they rather, Kill themselves or die in a shootout, you know. So, so this is the, again, this person, Christopher Donner, has uh, serious grievances of uh, racial discrimination at work. And, uh, the, the, and the next one that I know of is a Milwaukee Blu-ray shooting. The Milwaukee Blu-ray shooting happened in year 2020. Uh, and, uh, this person, Killed six people, including himself. Uh, once again, uh, this person has worked in this uh, uh, Milwaukee brewery for a long time, maybe maybe twenty years or thirty years. Uh, again, he has a serious grievances of a racial discrimination uh, at the work, uh, and uh, he snapped. And uh, he also knew uh, taking of other people's lives, it can never be justified. And he killed himself. The the reason I want to bring this up is this. Uh, this most recent shooting by Frank James in New York City subway uh, is somewhat related to, uh, to the Milwaukee Blu-ray shooting. So remember this guy, Frank James, he lived in Wisconsin. This uh, Milwaukee Blu-ray shooting happened in Wisconsin. And, uh, he has, uh, this guy, Frank James, has ven- vented about, uh, the racial discrimination at work, uh, you know, against this guy, uh, Milwaukee brewery shooter. And, uh, he apparently is upset about it. And, uh, once again, you know, we're extremely lucky that, uh, no one died from the New York subway shooting. And, uh, you know, expect, uh, you know, considering Frank James, his shooting, he pretty much, uh, you know, is indiscriminately uh, 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 shoot people in a subway, crowded subway. Uh, is uh, very different from from these uh, three shootings that I talk about, which are, uh, you know, which are very much uh, driven by rage and anger from. Uh, some discriminatory practice at workplace. So, you know, with that said, and, uh, you know, I want to briefly talk about this uh, white privilege defense because uh, I was very serious uh, in practice that uh, strategy had the FBI decided to press charges against me. I think white privilege defense could work uh in in white collar worker crimes uh sorry white collar crimes defense and the drug cases and uh in my cases you know uh it you know I think it could work uh because uh because uh, the white privilege defense is this basically you the defendant may allege that if not for his or her racial and ethnicity, the the, uh, the 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 law enforcement would have never investigated or prosecuted the defendant. So let me repeat a white privilege defense is based on an allegation that if not for the race and ethnicity of this criminal defendant, the law enforcement the prosecutor's office would never have investigated or prosecuted against this criminal defendant and uh and uh and i know uh this this uh uh this is a a novelty idea uh uh but i want to bring this out uh, by discussing cases in the past that uh, to, 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 to prove to the audience that white privilege does exist as a governmental and legal structure. It's not, it's simp- it's not true that the white privilege is just a behavioral phenomenon, a social phenomenon it's the actual legal benefit that white majorities has enjoyed uh, since the uh, beginning of America. Again, uh, because America is, in my opinion, a racialized capitalist society. And the judicial white privilege has always been a tool of uh, this uh, uh, colonial governance. And the courts always follow instead of following the controlling rule law, law of the land at the time they always abuse their its discretion to to at the expense of the racial minorities so with, with that and uh, I will close uh, today's episode and uh, I hope to see you again in my next episode thank you and have a good day